This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest session of the enormously successful, record-breaking Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, this event is sponsored by Deloitte's. Thank you very much to them. I'm able to say we're delighted with Deloitte's. Thank you. Um, it is my enormous pleasure to introduce to you Simon Callow, the Shakespeare of the Fringe this year, <laughs> whose uh, show at the Assembly Hall, it's on the Fringe, but my goodness, the Assembly Hall is sort of not quite Fringe-like, it's right at the heart of Edinburgh life, and Simon has been bestriding the stage as Shakespeare the Man, and I can say that anybody who hasn't seen it should kill for a ticket, because it is genuinely a tour de force. So it's an enormous pleasure to have Simon Callow here. And he's here, however, today as much as writer as actor, because uh, over his life on the stage, there's really scarcely been a moment where he hasn't been writing. And the pieces that make up this book, My Life in Pieces, pieces is either a piece of writing, or perhaps he can explain. Um, he has never lost an opportunity to write about his own craft and his own experiences, and it's a very rich book as a result. And Simon, I'd quite like to ask you just to start off by perhaps reading from the very, very first bit, which was the very first show you saw. Yes, the very first, uh, my first connection with the theatre. My background was, I suppose, theatrical, but un in the unimaginable past and swathed in myth. My Danish great-grandfather, Jules Guise, had been first a clown, then a ringmaster, then a theatrical agent. His star clients were a 14-strong troupe of midgets <laughs> called Dr. Zaynard's Lilliputian. His French wife, Thérèse, whom he met when she was riding bareback in the circus of which he was ringmaster, came from a long and distinguished line of circus equestrians. Her grandfather had opened a hippodrome in St. Petersburg, and when he left, the Tsar, who'd grown fond of him, gave him, as a farewell present, Napoleon's horse, Splendid, which he then showed off in the capital cities of Europe for the rest of his life. Jules and Thérèse had a son, also called Jules, whose wife, my maternal grandmother, was a gifted singer and had briefly been a chorus girl on tour until she ran away, she told me with characteristic candor, after an unwelcome advance of an amorous nature from one of the other girls. <laughs> I was seven years old when I received this baffling piece of information. My, my father's mother, who was French, had memories of the divine Sarah Bernhardt coming to their house in Lyon for tea. Her father was teaching Bernhardt the role of Hamlet. Less sensationally, she had been best friends with Lillian Bayliss's box office manager at the Old Vic. This ancient history was of purely romantic interest to me. We did just about as much theatre going as any other normal middle-class family, no more, no less. In other words, we were not really theatre goers at all. <laughs> the annual season of Peter Pan at the now long-demolished Scala Theatre was more or less de rigueur, however. I wrote this piece about my visit to it 
for Snowden's Christmas edition of Country Life in 1997. I'm standing in a queue in a London street on a cold, dark November night in 1953 with my uncle Morris and my grandmother. I'm four years old and howling with all the considerable power of my infant lungs. My fingers and toes are frozen, and I don't know why we're here, lined up with all these other people. The bright lights on the front of the building are getting closer as the queue shuffles forward. I howl louder and louder, not in the least mollified by assurances that I'll love it when we get inside. We pass through the front doors and into a sort of hallway, and then on into a vast room with rows and rows of seats covered in red velvet. At the end of the room is a huge curtain with gold tassels and braid in figures of eight down the sides. I'm more upset than ever, only wanting to be back home in familiar suburban stratum. Then music starts and the lights go out. Terror. The great curtain goes up and there before me is the inside of a big house filled with beds and children and their nanny who happens to be a dog and my jaw drops, and I immediately stop howling. And then a boy in a green costume flies in at the window, looking for his shadow, which turns out to be in a drawer. And a fairy flickers around the stage, and soon all the children fly out of the window as the music surges up, and my eyes open so wide it hurts, and I don't want to go back to Streatham. In fact, I never want to go back to Streatham again. <laughs> I want to fly out of the window, I want to fight pirates and rescue Indian maidens, I want to clash swords with Captain Hook, I want a twinkling fairy of my own. And I want to do it to the roars of approval and disapproval that well up from the hundreds of children in the theatre that evening. In short, my destiny has been fixed. And throughout my childhood I'm haunted by Peter Pan, moved by him in ways I don't understand, and captivated by Wendy and Nana the dog, Tiger Lily, Smee and Noodler, colouring them in in my copy of Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens. Above all, I am haunted by the ringleted, saturnine, ex-Etonian Captain Jazz Hook, sardonic, dashing and bad to the core. I too might have cried out with the little girl who, on the very first night of the play in November of 1908, shouted out during the terrible scene in which Hook poisons Peter, I love that man! <laughs> But as time passes, I forget Peter Pan. Shakespeare replaces Barry, and I've left the Mermaid's Lagoon and the Wendy House far behind. Until 1982, that is, when purely out of curiosity, I go to the Barbican Theatre to see the Royal Shakespeare's company of this funny old play, this dim memory of my childhood. And sitting there, skeptically, in that unlovely auditorium, the moment the chrome drawbridge that replaces the curtain is raised, and the darling's nursery is revealed, my heart is in my mouth. And when Nana the dog appears, I feel my eyes opening wide. The whole fast f first scene passes in a sort of blur of emotion for me, until, to Stephen Oliver's glorious ascending theme, Peter and the darling children fly out of the window, and I find myself sobbing. I squint sideways to see if anyone else has been similarly afflicted, and sure enough, down the cheeks of my 50-something neighbour, large tears are trickling as he tries to assert control over his twitching facial muscles. The children in the audience, meanwhile, are craning their necks, staring up, their jaws locked open as Peter and Wendy and John and Michael soar above their heads on the way to Neverland, 
And now the babble of childish voices from the auditorium threatens to drown the music. And all the other locations and the other characters produce this same dual effect, stirring the children to wonder and the adults to intense and ineffable emotion, painful and tender. And so it always has been, from the very first performance. Barry produced, out of his own longings and disappointments, a story which is both a stupendous divertissement and a potent myth, which at least for Anglo-Saxons seems to speak to some very deep places of the human heart, more so even than its close relation Alice in Wonderland, also the product of a man who became obsessed by the offspring of others and strove to glorify and immortalize their childhoods. If you analyze the emotion that that aroused in you when you saw it, can you sort of translate that also into the kind of emotion that you think lies at the heart of all great acting? Well, um, uh, acting, although acting is, in my view, absolutely central to the theatre, acting is not all that the theatre is by any means. So what Peter Pan did for me as as a child, of course, was to give me uh, indelible images of uh, of, of, of a a kind of a, a story about life which stuck in my brain forever. When I came back to it as an older person, and there was all the other older people there, I suppose, I I realized that it had somehow become embedded in my own childhood. But if you ask what the power of acting actually is, in my view, essentially, it's about penetrating into the heart of another human being and presenting that conveying that to an audience. But above all, that is about, this is perhaps maybe slightly unexpected of me to say this, above all that is about thinking into the mind of the characters that you're playing. Acting is thinking the thoughts of another person. Mm. And this is very much underestimated in acting. Acting is generally thought to be about emotion. And of course, acting is very much about generating emotion. And it deals with emotion and, and the emotions that, 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 that possess the character. But in the end, all our emotions come from our brains. And that's what we have to enter into as actors. Because actually, in, in the book, at one stage, you say all great acting, Olivier Brando's, Lawton's, Maggie Smith, is great because of piercing contact made with the thought processes of the character, thinking what the character thinks, hearing what the character hears, seeing what the character sees. So yep. you, you kind of think yourself into to the role and it becomes you. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, um, in a sense, you, you know, uh, I mean, uh, we are vessels, conduits for what the author has structured in terms of the thought of the character, and that adds up to who the character is. Mm. But the moment when acting becomes wonderful is when, uh, I, I've said this elsewhere, when, 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 when you cease to play the character and the character starts to play you. So that all the impulses and the energies and the responses and the relationships of the characters are, are, are 
established and they, they happen, as it were, for nothing. And you can therefore be in time present. And this is the whole point about acting and about the theatre, is that you're put into time present. We all walk around all the time in a constant kind of turbulence between the past and the future, anxious about the future or looking forward to the future, planning for the future or, or dwelling on the past. Uh, and the actual presentness of our, our existence is the thing that I don't think uh, is that get, get, gets lost in, in all of that. And so as people enter the building, the theatre building, they come, whether they know it or not, they think they come probably for diversion, amusement, entertainment, elevation maybe, uh, to hear beautiful words or whatever. But the actual fact is that what is extraordinary about the theatre when it really becomes extraordinary the same thing is true of music, is that it takes you into the present second and you're alive absolutely at that moment. And that can only be so if the actor is. Uh, and, and the very first actor in, in this book that you get that from, you start right at the top, is Laurence Olivier. Yes. And because you just explain you go and work in the box. Yes, office. well, it, it's a... It's a... It's a um, one of the most extraordinary moments of good fortune in my life was that, uh, that uh, uh, as a, as a, as a schoolboy, I went to see Laurence Olivier at the National Theatre a great deal. And I left school without really knowing what I wanted to do, except I was convinced I didn't want to go to university. Um, uh, I thought that uh, the life of contemplation that I imagined university was, of analysis, you no, know. No, you got that badly <laughs> I got that wrong. quite wrong, but <laughs> that was my, my, my idea, was that that's what university was about. And uh, when, I re when I actually, uh, so I didn't know, honestly, what to do with my life. Because I, I, wanted, I wanted to attach my life to something that really mattered. And I couldn't quite see how to do that. I, I didn't perhaps even know what really mattered. I, I didn't think that being a politician was going to be that, do you know? That hadn't occurred to me, uh, and still wouldn't occur to me. Um, not that it isn't a thing of great uh, uh, significance, but it clearly wasn't a thing that I was going to be involved in. In fact, I had no idea what I would be involved in, and I had all these kind of idiotic ideas. I thought I wanted to be a diplomat, and I realized, fortunately, in time, that that was because I, I, I loved the idea of swanning around at cocktail parties. <laughs> it was the canapes that attracted me <laughs> to being in the diplomatic corps. And then, and then I wanted to be a barrister, and that was, above all, because I loved those wigs and those uh, wonderful gowns, and especially the idea of saying, I put it to you, Malad, was the thing that I... So I but I, I, even I realized that the seven years of studying the law was more than I could contemplate to achieve those few moments of glory. Uh, so I really was ab absolutely at a loss. And I, I, went, I was going to the theater and loving it, absolutely one enraptured, and who would not have been at that time, Olivier's National Theatre at its absolute height, when, uh, 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 you know, uh, um, all those young actors like Jacoby and, and, and Maggie Smith, and oh, Maggie was slightly older, but, but Jacoby and Gambon and, uh, and, and Jane Lapiter and so on, and Tony Hopkins were the young bloods in the company, and, and, uh, uh, and Laurence Olivier himself was playing Othello and the three, uh, he eventually did play the three sisters, but Othello and, uh, and, and uh, uh, the dance of death and uh, love for love and all the Merchant of Venice and so on. Extraordinary, astounding performances of Olivia's, which I, I have to say, uh, I, I still think uh, that those performances of Olivia's, although I, I've slightly broadened my view of 
what acting can be. But at that moment, uh, I thought that Olivier was so far above any other actor that I had ever seen in my life. The physical impact of the man, it's uh, something that well, I, I've stri striven a lot over my career to try to describe because, of course, you can't see it anymore. You can see him in films, but it isn't the same thing. He wasn't a notably uh, a comfortable actor in front of the camera. What he was was a stage animal, and <laughs> animal is the word. You actually say, by the way, in the book, the sheer sexual energy he unleashed yeah. into the auditorium. That is absolutely correct. And that is a very, very unusual phenomenon in the theatre, uh, much more than we think it is. You know, we think somebody's handsome and sexy or whatever and beautiful and the, 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 that's, that, that, that's, that's sexy. But Olivier, Olivier's relationship to the audience was sexual. It was an act of, of domination, of courtship, and, and, and it contained a certain violence in it as well. It was, a, it was a, an electrifying energy that he released. He needed to. That was, you know, uh, to give a little, sorry, a little detour here. I, uh, another thing that I've, I've only lately come to realize about acting is that, is that the, what, what, what acting is all, what it comes from is a particular need of some sort or another. True, no doubt, of all performers, true, no doubt, of all artists. Some overwhelming need. And the greater the need, the greater the actor. And I should think Olivier was probably the neediest man who ever took to the stage. Mm. And, and, his, and his need came from, a, was, is explicit in one wonderful revealing line in his autobiography, which is uh, not a, 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 an exceptionally well-written book from a literary point of view, but in fact is all the more convincing because of that. It's naked, his autobiography, absolutely naked. And he says in it, somewhere along the line, the only problem in my relationship, the relationship between my father and me, was that he could never see the slightest point in my existence. Mm. <laughs> and I think you have everything in that sentence. Mm. I think every time Sir Laurence Olivier stood on the stage, 50 years after his father had died, he was still saying, how about this, Dad? Mm. Is this it? Is this it? Am I, have I conquered enough people? Have I proved myself? And so whatever the psychic uh, machinery was that produced the result, anyway, that it was electrifying. He was the first actor, of course, ever to um, go to the gym, in my knowledge. He, he actually had a gym installed in the National Theatre when he was playing Othello at the age of 60. He decided that it was time to, to get into real shape. And he worked, as he did everything, with unrelenting determination and willpower. And he turned himself, as anybody who saw that performance, now, of course, uh, people think it's a, a sort of politically incorrect performance, and even at the time, some people didn't uh, uh, think it was a very good Othello. Whatever else it was or wasn't, the achievement of the, 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 the domination of mind over body was simply extraordinary. He turned himself into a, a kind of... Um, panther, uh, uh, and indeed someone with a distinctly Caribbean gait. That's what he aimed to do. He made himself into another race. He really did that. Um, and um, uh, these prodigies were going on night after night at the Old Vic, and I was going to see them. And I thought, not only was I astounded by what I saw on the stage, but I, I also was incredibly stirred by what he'd created at the National Theatre. Because he was a great manager. He was the last of the actor managers, as all actor managers 
are, he was essentially paternalistic, and he saw it as a family and himself as the father of the family. And uh, so he, he sort of created uh, the best possible world for his theatre family, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and indeed for his audience. Uh, so every detail of the National Theatre had been thought about by him, and it was uh, the, the, the clothes, the, the uniforms that the ushers wore, the kind of sandwiches that were served in the bar, whether there was lavatory paper in the number two dressing room or not, Larry had his eye <laughs> on it everywhere. He cared deeply about this. So I got this feeling as I watched the shows, not merely that I was in the presence of the greatest actor I had ever seen, or the greatest acting company that I had ever seen, or the most thrilling productions by some of the greatest directors in the world who came to, 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 to work at the National Theatre in a way that no foreign director has since. This is a very cheeky yes. suggestion or question. You can't do us a quick imitation of Larry on stage. I'm not very good at Olivia. No, I wish not. I were. We should have Tony Hopkins here. Tony, Tony was his understudy, and Tony mm. was uncanny. Uncanny. I mean, I, and, um, I, I really can't. I, I, it would just be disappointing if, if I did it. But, uh, but, uh, but when he was... Uh, I, anyway, but just to quickly tell the story, I, I uh, um, uh, wrote him a letter and uh, 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 three full scap page closely typed letter explaining to him what an excellent organization he was running and <laughs> he, he wrote back by return of post which uh, uh, dates uh, uh, this story doesn't it mm. <laughs> and uh, he said uh, uh, if you like it so much why don't you come and work for us there's a job in the box office well, he's done it. So I, uh, not quite. <laughs> but, 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 but anyway, so I, so I went uh, uh, and went to work in the box office, and that's when I read it all, you know. But, but the point is that I had then discovered, uh, I, I met all these people, all these actors, and, and thought, oh, well, maybe I, maybe I could be part of this organization, but not still thinking I could act at all. Because you understand, if, you, if you're in that close proximity with Laurence Olivier, the idea that you might also be an actor for some boy who'd never, boy from Streatham, who'd never acted in anything in his life, the hubris was just, would have been ridiculous. So I, I was never like him or many of the other great actors who had this single-minded idea that, that acting was their salvation. I never even thought that I would have the, I, I didn't know, I had no idea whether I had any talent. So it took a long time, I, I, I went to university and then I started acting there and began, and was so, shockingly bad as an actor that I immediately knew that if I was going to act I'd have to go somewhere where they would teach me properly. Do you think that you inherited a bit of that need yourself? Were you, are you aware that some of your performances are driven in that same way? Not enough. Otherwise I'd be a greater actor. No. Um, the, the, uh, and, and the fact that I've diversified in the way that I have, that I've directed uh, quite, uh, you know, separately from acting and things, which of course Larry always directed, but normally when he was in it as well. Uh, and uh, 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 and uh, also um, uh, I've written and so on. I've diversified myself. The need to impose yourself on an audience is not one that I've ever quite felt. What I've always wanted to do is to share something with an audience. 
And I've been interested in a different tradition of acting. I only now realize, years and years and years and years later, which, uh, a different tradition of acting, which is the tradition of storytelling. That's the tradition that I'm really fascinated by. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Sir Lawrence was that fascinated by that. I think he saw the theater as gladiatorial and as uh, 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 athletic and a physical, a physical phenomenon which awed the audience. And he always used to say, famous remark of his, was my ambition is to interest the public in the art of acting. That's a very interesting standpoint to come from. So in other words, you're rather treating acting in the theatre the way you might treat sport. You know, you know the form, you watch it and so on. The other actors have had a completely different view, which is that they want the actor not to think about, the audience not to think about acting at all, but to submit to the spell of the characters. And I find that what utterly fascinates me is, is this, this storytelling, which of course doesn't need to be in the form of me standing up and telling a story, but that, that the, the character unfolds a story in himself. Um, and I, again, something that I discovered quite late is that uh, character is narrative. That's to say, it's the story of these people. Unless you establish who these people are with great, great clarity. Now, Sir Lawrence did something again else. He would always look for the opportunities in a part. He'd see what he could do that was extraordinary with it, and he'd do it. And um, Alec Guinness, who, whom I, I knew rather well in the, the last years of his life, said to me a, a remarkable thing about Sir Lawrence, uh, and uh, it wasn't uh, uh, um, uh, praise. He said, I'd go and see one of Larry's performances, say, and he'd say a line, and I'd never heard it before. So I'd run back to the complete Shakespeare, and there it was, a completely unimportant line, which Larry had somehow elevated into significance. And it, that's what he would do. His you became Alec Guinness uh, then, by yes. the way. Yes, <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> but, but, Alec, uh, but Alec was, um, uh, funnily enough, Alec repeated exactly, almost word for word, that remark in his address at Laurence Olivier's uh, state funeral. But as a compliment. <laughs> it was <laughs> fantastically well, cleverly adapted. Um, but, uh, um, but Lawrence, I, I'm, I'm fascinated at the moment. As you know, I, I, in my uh, show, The Man from uh, Stratford, I open the second half with the speech, uh, once more out of the breach, dear friends, that is almost synonymous with Lawrence Olivier. And indeed, at his memorial service at the funeral, the state funeral, it was the last thing we heard, and it was utterly electrifying because n no actor, I, I would venture to say, probably in the history of the theatre, certainly not in the history of the theatre of my lifetime, had such vocal control as Larry. And he, he really literally did orchestrate his speeches so that the once more under the breach, dear friends, rises to cry, God, for Harry England, uh, Harry, whatever the line is, I'll say it right tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Harry England and St. George. And he, he starts with sort of cellos and, and basses, and then he brings violins in and a bit of percussion. And then by the end, he's battering you with trumpets and horns, and it's magnificent. And we all wept and, 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 and were shaken when we heard it again in the Abbey. But in doing the speech, I realized that 
He doesn't play the speech yeah. at all, the way it's written. Everything about that speech is calculated brilliantly by Shakespeare to deconstruct war for the, for the very opening line. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. What an extraordinary thing for the monarch to say to his soldiers, mm. to call them dear friends. He's, he's saying, we're in trouble here, and I need your help. And th then he says, uh, he says, in, in, in peace, there is nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. An extraordinary phrase, isn't it? But do you remember it from when Sir Lawrence spoke that speech? Does it, does it, it he does, mm. I don't know what, he throws it away somehow in a general blur yeah. of physical excitement. He then says, uh, uh, stiffen the sinew, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard favored rage, then lend the eye a terrible aspect. Now set the teeth and stretch the nostrils wide. Hold hard the breath and bend up every spirit. He's giving an acting lesson to his soldiers. It's absolutely fantastic. It's so original. It's so remarkable. But you see, that was Sir Lawrence. That's the plus so, so and the you're, minus. You're actually, it sounds to me as if you're venturing a slight criticism of Laurence Olivier, the actor, yeah. more interested in the process of projecting himself yeah. uh, than perhaps uh, uh, listening to the text. I think that is the case. It certainly was the case. As often happens to us in life, as Sir Laurence became less physically strong, he started to dig deeper into himself. And The Dance of Death was a performance of such searing autobiographical intensity of playing an absolutely loathsome man, and he stinted nothing. Sir Lawrence, who had sought to charm and bludgeon, as I say, make love to the audience, said to them, but I'm this too, and it's pretty nasty. And it was phenomenal, that performance, absolutely extraordinary. Now, I'm going to, to sort of change the tone slightly because yes. I want you to read, there's another piece in the book, which is, I think one can safely say from the sublime, <laughs> not to the ridiculous, but to Very. Panto. Yes. Very good. Uh, this is when I was at um, uh, the Theatre Royal Lincoln, my first, indeed, only experience of, of, of rep. Um, and uh, it uh, goes like this. Uh, Christmas of 1973-74. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. On the one hand, it was a freezing winter in the midst of the miners' strike and Edward Heath's three-day week. On the other, I was 24 years old and in hog heaven, theatrically speaking. I was a leading actor at the Theatre Royal Lincoln only three months after leaving drama school and had already played major part after major part. Business had been so-so. Astonishing, really, in the economic circumstances that it had held up at all. And now, in December, we were about to embark on the shows which would justify our existence in the town and make it possible for the company to survive for the rest of the year. A Christmas carol, playing mostly to parties of schoolchildren, and Aladdin, playing to families. 
A Christmas Carol went with a swing in rehearsal, mingling pity and terror with low comedy. The latter was my particular contribution. I was playing Bob Cratchit and Mr. Fezziwig and countless other larger-than-life characters and romped through it all with the naked energy and shameless exhibitionism of extreme youth. We shrieked our ways through rehearsals. Chris Ryan, later of the young ones on television, was playing Scrooge, and we vied with each other in outrageous invention. We soon learned that to catch each other in the eye was fatal, so of course we caught each other in the eye as much as possible. <laughs> Getting on stage and dealing with the set sobered us up a bit. It was a beautiful, complex piece of work, miraculous considering the budget, an affair of lifts and traps and moving scenery, wonderful in action, but it took some negotiating. Snowdrifts were achieved by scattering crumbled polystyrene from the flies overhead. At the dress rehearsal, as I joyously raised my voice to belt out, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I sucked in a mouthful of the stuff, <laughs> inhaling more up my nostrils, and was suddenly unable to breathe. Young audiences may have been somewhat shocked by the sight of the kindly Bob Cratchit ramming his fingers down his throat and vigorously emitting projectile vomit into the wings, rather in the manner some years later of Linda Blair in The Exorcist. But we had no time for niceties of etiquette. The show must go on, whatever. On another occasion, during the party at the Fezziwig's house, just as Mrs. Fezziwig, uh, Thea Ranft, and I riotously led the assembled company round the stage in a brisk cotillion, we suddenly found ourselves hurtling some 15 feet through the floor. The stage trap had given way under us. An awful silence fell on stage. Taya and I reassured each other in our pit that we were not dead, and then became aware of ten horrified faces staring gingerly into the trap. Down in the wine cellar again, Mr. Fezziwig, ho ho. One of the actors gamely ventured, while another, her face frozen in a rictus of reassuring delight, signalled desperately to the stage manager to bring the curtain in, but he too was paralysed with disbelief. Fueled by adrenaline, Taya and I briskly shinned up the ladder, pinned to the side of the understage, and shortly appeared, bleeding and blinking. <laughs> The little ones in the audience must have been baffled because the figure that now appeared from the hole in the stage was not Mr. Fezziwig, but unmistakably Bob Cratchit. <laughs> Since the only things which had distinguished the one character from the other, the wig, side whiskers and spectacles, had come off in the fall. Regardless, I assumed with demented vivacity the bent posture and wheezing vocals of dear old Fezziwig and vigorously launched into God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, cotillioning madly off stage where Taya and I could find a collapse in painful laughter. There was worse. The day before Christmas Eve, I arrived at the theatre at nine o'clock in the morning for the first of that day's three performances to be greeted by the director with the news that Chris had a fever of 103 deg degrees and no voice. Either the little ones must be sent away, bitterly disappointed, their Christmas outing ruined, or I must go on for him as Scrooge. I was aghast. I barely knew my own parts, let alone his. <laughs> for a minute and a half, I allowed myself and everyone else to believe that the little ones would indeed be disappointed, could, in fact, sod themselves as far as I was concerned. <laughs> Seconds later, I was being bundled into the character's padding, nightshirt, and heavy Victorian suit. Before I knew it, I was staggering about the stage, inventing Dickensian dialogue, being pushed in and out of the light by the director, who had come on stage with me as an angel. 
<laughs> the experience uh, of, uh, 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 of, uh, uh, of acting a scene with another actor playing Bob Cratchit, saying the very lines to me I had myself said only the day before yesterday, and me answering him in the lines that until yesterday someone else had been saying to me was severely hallucinatory. It must have been... <laughs> Must have been even weirder for him. The poor chap had been roped in that morning while passing through visiting his girlfriend. <laughs> I lost half a stone that day. <laughs> Fortunately, there was only one more day to go, Christmas Eve. And after the performances, we could do the technical rehearsal of the pantomime and then go home to our Christmas beds and our Christmas day off. We would have done, too, had not the designer, overwhelmed by the scale of his task, panicked and decamped the mot juste, I think. This exotic young man, known as Diane, his name was Moshe, had spent... <laughs> had spent the budget on a flimsy physical structure he had knocked up in the workshop before setting off back to London, never to return, and a great deal of luminous paint, glue, glitter, and gilded seersucker fabric, which we found hidden at the back of the set. There was nothing for it but to start decorating, which we did until we dropped, having already given three Christmas carols that day at about four in the morning. We crawled home and then did our best to pretend that it was Christmas. I was sharing my flat with an actress who was, much to the dismay of her young son, macrobiotic. Roast tofu with all the trimmings. <laughs> our distinctly undickensian repast. Edward Heath did the rest. Television came to an end at 10 o'clock and a post-tofu walk down Lincoln High Street only deepened the gloom since the Christmas lights, which had been hung up, were never lit, thanks to the fuel restrictions. <laughs> At about six o'clock in the evening, we'd gone into the theatre and done a few hours on the set, and this, in its way, was the high spot of the day, inspired by the Dunkirk spirit and a certain amount of, a large amount of other spirits, too. <laughs> the next day, Boxing Day, we crawled into the theatre at 9am and finished the job off, discreetly adjusting the perhaps somewhat exuberant execution of the night before. It all sort of fell into place. I was on first as Abanaza. <laughs> By the ninth book of the Nephritic Pentacles, I summon the genie, <laughs> and so on, ad libitum. <laughs> this was accompanied by a flash of flame from something called flash wool. Needless to say, the designer had omitted to order it, and the young stagehand in charge of it had improvised something. It was his job to light it, then beat a hasty retreat as the curtain rose. On the first performance, he duly lit it. There was an enormous explosion, which rooted him to the spot, at the same time brilliantly lighting his soot-covered hands and face. Oh, fuck, he cried. <laughs> this was thus the opening line of Aladdin in Lincoln Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, one, one, <laughs> wonderful. So I may say that tradition still goes on because at the, at the Pitlochry Festival Theatre this year, we watched as Tinkerbell, which was also a light on stage, got out of hand and the chap had to come on with a fire extinguisher <laughs> to put poor Tinkerbell out. <laughs> um, just, um, we, we must allow the audience um, uh, questions, but I think you'll have to go straight into uh, your final reading. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'd, I'd just like to read um, 
What I wrote about uh, um, the man who is, I suppose, the greatest actor that I ever worked with and uh, uh, one of the greatest actors, I believe, that this country ever produced and an extraordinary man with whom I uh, acted in uh, Amadeus. He played Salieri. It was Paul Schofield. And um, Paul uh, uh, died, I think, some uh, uh, two, uh, no, uh, yes, two years ago. And um, I uh, was com contacted by, by, by uh, the uh, BBC for uh, some kind of comment. And I made a quick comment. And I, 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 I felt I'd done so little justice to him that I phoned the Guardian, for whom I quite often write, and asked them if they'd let me write a piece. And they said, yes, if you write it now and uh, deliver it by 6 o'clock. And uh, I was just about to get onto a train to go and do Waiting for Godot in Milton Keynes, but I did. And I wrote this on the train, more or less. Um, and it's so very hot from, from my memories of him. And uh, sums up him, in a way, and perhaps a great deal of what this book turned out to be about, which is um, greatness in actors and the possible overwhelming experiences that audiences can have from them. Paul Schofield was the last of the theatrical titans, a late flowering of that astonishing generation which included Olivier, Gielgud, Ashcroft, Evans, Redgrave, and Richardson. And his death on Wednesday leaves the stage immeasurably impoverished. I say the stage because despite his Oscar for A Man for All Seasons and much distinguished work in other films and on television, he was above all a creature of the theater. And no one who saw him treading the boards will ever forget it. He was such an uncommon physical phenomenon, tall and powerful, a fine figure of a man, but complex, even physically. Every inch of him seemed to be expressing contradictory things. His face was sensationally handsome. As a youth, he would have been called beautiful. But there, too, there were contradictions. The soft sensuousness of his mouth, denied by the sharp precision of his nose. His eyes often veiled, his brow imperious, his eyebrows endlessly mobile. His skin was astonishingly smooth and soft. Perhaps the most extraordinary of his physical gifts, though, was his voice, an instrument like none other, an organ with limitless stops from the mightiest of bass rumbles through light tenorial lyricism to falsetto pipings. He seemed to be able to sound several notes at once, creating chords which resonated to the most remarkable effect, stirring strange emotions. He would swoop effortlessly up and down the register, but always for expressive purpose, never for mere virtuosity. Given this exotic physical endowment, it is surprising that he was able to transform himself so completely. His uncle Vanya and his King Lear, within a few years of each other, seemed scarcely to come from the same planet. And could it be the same actor playing the gloriously shabby, bedraggled Wilhelm Vocht in The Captain of Köpenick, who would appear a few seasons later in the role of Oberon, all made of air and silver? Equally, he had access to a kind of deeply human nobility, best exemplified in his Thomas More. These transformations were of great virtuosity, but they never drew attention to themselves. He was unusual among English actors in that however exuberant his assumptions might sometimes be, he was not an extrovert. Whatever he did had a profound charge of interiority within it. His performances owed nothing to any influence, but were entirely original, many-layered and complex. With him, the inner workings of the character were made flesh. 
In the early 1970s, I was an usher at the old Vic and saw his Wilhelm Focht night after night. I found myself deeply nourished by his performance. It was like gazing at a great painting and finding more and more in it. Endless detail, sudden vistas of great depth, marvels of technique producing immense emotion. In the light of all this, it may be imagined that I approached the prospect of acting with him with a kind of bliss mingled with dread. The play was Amadeus. He, of course, was playing the machinating Salieri. I was to be Mozart. I was 30, in the grip of almost uncontrollable energy, which I scarcely knew what to do with, on stage or off. He was 57, two years younger than I am today, but giving a good impression of the Ancient of Days, with his magnificent silver head of hair and his noble mien. The only bohemian element, the only clue that he might be an actor rather than a king, say, or a Nobel Prize winner, was his penchant for pastel-coloured shirts. In person, he was sweet, courteous, without any side whatever. He laughed easily, but it was evident that he was very shy socially. He wore country clothes and smoked his pipe whenever he could. Once the formalities were over, we swiftly got on with rehearsing the play. He said very little and was evidently wrestling with a very long part, which was being constantly rewritten. I, on the other hand, seemed to be suffering from Tourette's syndrome, busily offering suggestions on every subject, including his performance. <laughs> Schofield eyed me warily from behind his high-backed chair. In other words, our relationship was pretty well that of the characters in the play, with the difference that I was playing a genius while he actually was one. <laughs> I noted that his approach was to seem to sketch the performance in quite lightly, and then suddenly plunge in deeper, like an aquadiver. He would emerge from these sudden immersions with another important new note in the character, which would then be incorporated into the role. However it was that Paul contacted his inner life, it had nothing to do with the method or any conscious seriousness of purpose. He simply sent the character for a swim in his own secret streams, the deeply hidden pools of emotion and fantasy deep within him which I suspect even he knew nothing about. As the older Salieri, he had invented an extraordinary old geezer, wheezing and leering, a doddery comic fuss budget, who then disappeared in the twinkling of an eye when the young Salieri stepped forward and the action of the play commenced. I was rather shocked by how much he seemed to be enjoying playing old Salieri. There was almost a quality of music hall about it. Acting with him in the rehearsal room was inspiring and paralyzing in equal measure. I was desperately nervous and overcompensated by being too emphatic, shrieking and giggling over his lines. He bore it with great patience. What he could not endure was the constant rewriting. One day, Peter Hall, who was directing, told me that he and Peter Schaffer had realized that there were a couple of lines necessary in a certain sequence in one of his scenes with me, and that they were going to give them to Paul. During a break, the four of us gathered round the piano in the middle of the rehearsal room, while the other actors sat round chatting, having tea and so on, well out of earshot of our little group. Hall said, Paul, Peter has a small rewrite which he never finished the sentence. Schofield said in a voice that was barely audible but of unimaginable intensity, I'm not learning another line. <laughs> Suddenly the whole room fell silent and the temperature turned to ice. Hall immediately said he was sure it wasn't really necessary. Schaffer started gibbering, and I offered to say all the new lines myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
end of discussion. The veil of courtesy had been pulled away for a minute, and one saw the massive power that lay behind the affable exterior. It was this power that underpinned every performance he gave. On another occasion, I was, as usual, solving the play's problems, as I saw it, and said, well, it just needs a line here, and Paul roared, not from me, baby! <laughs> and then he turned to me and added, you monster! <laughs> the word hurled at me like a thunderbolt. I felt duly pulverized and was actually shaking physically, but had the good sense after a suitable interval to go over to him as he fumed behind his high-backed chair and say, I've just got a few rewrites for tomorrow, Paul. And he laughed and explained his anxieties, and we started to know each other properly from that moment. When we left the rehearsal room and got into the theater, I felt him stretching and prowling like a panther in the jungle, sniffing the space out. He seemed, even during technical rehearsals, to be expanding. He started getting taller. When the audience arrived at the first preview, he seemed like a giant. I was physically shocked by the intensity of the public's response to him. They ached for him. They wanted to consume him entirely, every delicious morsel. I had no experience of this sort of thing and foolishly tried to tug him back into the relationship we had had in the rehearsal room. He would not tolerate it. He and the audience were making love and woe betide anyone who came between them. When I finally got the hang of it and attempted a little gentle lovemaking with the audience myself, he changed completely. He was more than happy to encourage a ménage à trois. <laughs> From then on, and for the remainder of the two years during which we did the play, there was a deep twinkle in his eyes as we played the great game together in close communion with the audience. He plumbed the depths and soared to the heights of Salieri's tormented soul. But behind it all, Somewhere was that twinkle. We got on wonderfully well without ever really spending any time together. Our relationship was unspoken until one night on the stairs on the way back from the stage, he suddenly told me that he would never play Salieri with anyone but me. I swore the same to him. We remained faithful to our vows. I would see him from time to time. We wrote to each other. We did the play on the radio. He had no small talk, but then he had no big talk either. He did not live the usual semi-public life of an actor. When he wasn't acting, he retreated to the home where he lived in perfect domestic equilibrium with his beloved wife, Joy. He didn't much leave the country, except to go to the Isle of Mull, where, as everywhere else, he read and thought and nurtured his inner life. After a triumphant John Gabriel Borkman at the National Theatre, he seemed to have quietly retired. And then, about eight years ago, I asked him to take part in a gala I was directing at the Palace Theatre one Sunday night. And he duly stepped forward at the end of the evening, slightly frail, a little smaller than he had been, but still in majestic command of his great vocal instrument and his adoring public. It was Prospero's farewell, and he filled that large auditorium with his unique music. I and everyone in the cast and all the stage managers and the stagehands surrendered to his spell. Perfect silence fell. And now that great voice is silent. It is hard to imagine another such voice being heard in our lifetime. Hmm. Uh, we, we had planned to give uh, ample time for questions. <laughs> that time uh, has been squeezed somewhat, but now is your opportunity. So if anybody has uh, a question for Simon, please speak now. 
I think they're all stunned. I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not entirely surprised. Um, so if you all are happy for us to continue talking, we will do so for another five minutes, uh, which won't be difficult, believe me. <laughs> and I just want to ask you about something you say in the book uh, about theatre. Uh, and you say in the book, uh, and it puzzled me, I didn't quite know what you were getting at, you're writing about a theatre that no longer exists. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, the, the theatre has changed radically in, in the last, in the 40 years that I've been acting in it, and was already rapidly changing after the war. And the biggest change of all, of course, the main change, is that the theatre was what I call thespocentric. It revolved around the actors. It was the stars that made the theater. And now it's the companies. And uh, uh, many actors have said to me, older actors have said, that the, the general level of acting has ra risen out of all recognition in the theater. You no longer get shabby little performances in, in, in the small parts, as you used to do, even in the West End. But the, the, what used to be the pyramid that came to its climax with people like Schofield, Olivier, Richardson, Gielgud, all the people, we, some of the people we've been talking about, that has changed uh, because, for, for a number of reasons, most, mostly for social reasons, because we no longer look, perhaps this is especially true in England, we no longer look to people that we can look up to. We don't want people who are towering figures. We want people who are like us, about whom we know absolutely everything, about whom we can uh, deconstruct. Was the whole point about being a star in those days, and being a great actor, was that you had some kind of a mystery, some kind of an enigma about you. And even if your private life was known, like Olivia and Vivian Lee, that too entered into the mythic sphere. But now it's, I think partly this big change occurred uh, with the uh, creation of the English Stage Company, where uh, in the, the wonderful uh, uh, rush towards creating a, 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 a demotic theatre, a theatre which wasn't about the middle classes exclusively or about the upper classes, but which actually brought all of life onto the stage, uh, it, it became the goal of all actors to be like a recognisable human being. And Although this sounds like an admirable objective, uh, in my view, what it uh, 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 countered was the idea of acting as an art. So the comparison for me would be between photography and painting. You have a photograph, well, anyway, photographs can be many things, but, but the idea that you, you, you represent a reality is a fascinating one and a good one. But we've always believed that, for example, Rembrandt's painting of his mother or his self-portraits are more than simply a representation of what you can see with your eye, but something which infinitely enriches and in many ways stylizes and changes the nature of the performance. And all of these actors that I'm talking about, many of them were known in their day as very mannered. Ralph Richardson was mannered, and Paul did have this kind of extraordinary, uncommon voice, and Larry didn't sound like anybody from any <laughs> planet that you'd ever met. They, they, had, they had constructed performing identities and used elements from all kinds of arts 
in order to enrich themselves as actors. And this is not the objective of actors anymore. Mm. Uh, okay, if I can invite you to be sort of faintly bitchy for a moment, I mean, one of the things that's happened is that the theatres are full of uh, people who've made their reputations uh, on uh, television and who are sort of pop stars and that kind of thing. Do you disapprove of that? I hope you do. Um, <laughs> I, I don't disapprove of anybody standing on a stage who can act. Uh, if they can act, then I'm all for it. Being a pop star and an actor seems to me to be a wonderful thing. But it's unlikely and unusual. Uh, but, but when they can, but, but, but I think you slightly overstate, if I may say so. I mean, the, the National Theatre, for example, is absolutely full of actors who aren't pop stars, you know. But they're trying to do a different thing from what that other generation did. The other thing, in, the other way in which the theatre has changed so utterly, of course, is, and I refer to Rancher Lincoln, you know, it's rep. The repertory companies, of course, was all dismantled in the early 70s, thanks largely to, to, the, to, the, to, to the actions, not the early 70s, the early 80s, of the, the actions of, the, of uh, the Thatcher government in capping rates meant that most of the councils who had supported their repertory theatres were in, felt entitled now to scrap that grant. Mm. And so that wonderful, wonderful phenomenon of a company of actors, as you've got, for example, in Nottingham or Exeter or Glasgow, all over the country. A group of actors who stayed together for a year, two years, three years, who tested out their strengths, who formed a relationship with the, the city in exactly the way that you would have a relationship with a football team, that the, that, that the audience watched the progress of young actors, were fascinated, that new writing was constantly being done. Those kind of things, all of that died. So young actors don't have that training ground, and they are catapulted into parts that they're just not yet able to do. They haven't built up uh, the muscle, or, or they haven't had the experience of, of playing with other actors enough. Uh, it was an, a phenomenal training ground, but it was phenomenal in all sorts of ways, yeah. and it's a true loss in our lives. What we should have packed in but haven't been able to are Simon's early beginnings in here in Scotland at the Lyceum. I meant to ask him about, and it would have been followed on perfectly, what you think of the formation of a national theatre in Scotland. Have you seen Black Watch? All those questions we'll have to wait for next, next time. Year. In the meantime, uh, uh, Simon Callow's book, uh, You Must Buy, uh, it, it, it's a feast. And uh, Simon, I think, will be available to sign copies in the signing tent next door. But in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, will you please thank Simon Callow for a wonderful performance. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.